Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. We are headed for more than 1.4 million new consumer bankruptcies filed this year, the largest number since the 2005 amendments to the code. Historically, there's a close correlation between rising bankruptcies and consumer debt burdens, and the current trends bear this out. The heavy overhang of consumer spending fueled by relaxed lending standards and which helped to grow the economy in recent years, has led to high levels of household debt, mortgage debt, credit card debt, and more. Families made vulnerable by the debt overhang are prime candidates for bankruptcy when some of life's economic events occur, a job loss, family breakup, uninsured medical expense, and the like. Our guest today has spent a career studying and writing about the history of money, finance, and debt, from Wall Street to Main Street. Charles Geist is the author of 17 books, including his most recent, Collateral Damaged, The Marketing of Consumer Debt to America, published this year by Bloomberg Press. The new book explains how a nation of savers became a nation of consumers, and how Wall Street used consumers' addiction to spending to create the toxic securities that threaten to bring about the collapse of the global economy. The book connects the dots from consumer spending to credit cards to home equity loans and back to credit cards. Professor Geist teaches finance at Manhattan College, where he holds the Ambassador Charles A. Gargano Chair of Global Economics. He earned his Ph.D. from the London School of Economics. Welcome, Professor Geist, to ABI Podcasts. Thank you. Nice to be with you. First, do you uh, do you agree that the U.S. economy is dependent on consumer spending and particularly spending on credit? It's it's a bit late to put that uh, toothpaste back in the tube, isn't it? Oh, I think it's been too late to put it back for quite a long time. Uh, in the 1920s, we established the modern American economy, where consumption accounted for about 67% of the GDP. And we were happy enough to roll along that way for quite a while, despite the Depression and the Second World War. But beginning somewhere in the mid to late 1990s and continuing into the 2000s, that percentage increased at one time almost to 81%. And that is too much toothpaste out of the tube. It signified uh, a boom in consumer spending, which had never been seen before, although clearly this country is quite used to it. And it was what led directly to this crisis. Tell us what your research tells you about the change in consumer attitudes toward debt over the last few generations. For example, does, does debt carry the same uh, social stigma, perhaps, that it did then? No, in fact, what I what I discovered is that um, for the last three or four thousand years, depending on when you're counting or when you begin counting, uh, the idea of being in debt has always been treated very gingerly. In fact, it was condemned by most major Western institutions. Uh, the Catholic religion 
forbid it. Uh, the Jews for, forbid it. And of course, the Muslims have continually, until this day, forbid right. the, the charging of interest. Right. And uh, it was only probably after World War II, uh, as we started to roll into this current period of consumer spending, that the idea of debt or being in debt was changed by clever marketing to the idea of being extended credit, which is a much more positive side. So therefore, rather than being, for instance, $100,000 in debt on one's mortgage, one had received $100,000 worth of credit from a bank, and, and parenthetically, of course, the bank must think I can pay that back. So as a result, it became a positive rather than a negative, as it had been for centuries. But more recently... Uh, perhaps, how do you uh, trace the uh, development or evolution of attitudes toward debt? Well, I think recently uh, it's become intertwined as the population has gotten larger with the old, older notion of the American dream. And it's been fostered by financial institutions who emphasize present value. So therefore, everybody wants something now, and it shouldn't be any problem paying it off in the future. I mean, the, uh, the idea of being in debt has been slightly changed. Uh, we're in debt now against uh, future revenues, as we always have been, but we're able to enjoy the benefits now, and that is probably the major change. And, of course, that's been aided, again, by a great deal of marketing. There are uh, periodic uh, calls, um, as there are even today, for uh, lenders to tighten standards, uh, particularly uh, in consumer uh, credit availability uh, as a matter of not only their own uh, balance sheets, but uh, as a way of uh, protecting uh, the public from uh, getting in uh, to debt that is simply unsustainable. When lenders pull back on the availability of credit to populations as a result of tightening lending standards, uh, historically, uh, isn't there a danger of the kind of inevitable disproportionate impact on certain populations, even suggesting uh, discrimination in, in, in what we've seen in the past in the housing and consumer credit markets in particular? Isn't, is that not a, a potential danger in the tightening of lending standards? That's, that is certainly a danger. Uh, for instance, years ago, Banks, for instance, did not want to make mortgages in minority neighborhoods, especially in cities. Uh, and the process was called redlining. And at that time, it was clear that the banks did not want to make those sorts of loans. And there was a fair amount of pressure, clearly, from the federal government to, to fix that problem, although it was never completely fixed. Uh, beginning again in the late 90s, uh, with the Clinton administration, carried on by the Bush administration afterwards, there was a strong push to loan money, lend money rather, to um, to minorities, so that they could achieve the American dream. It was part of the contemporary American ideology, which was very, very strong and powerful argument. Right. Uh, as a result, now that we've hit this crisis, uh, it's many of those folks in the lower income brackets who are being hurt the most simply because they've been either lied to on application forms, didn't understand the process particularly well, and they will be the first ones hurt. Uh, so they were hurt before and they're getting hurt again. And it, in the long run, this doesn't do anyone any good, either the institutions 
the regulators and or the society at large. Well, who's comfortable saying that certain populations shouldn't have access to credit for their own good, perhaps? Who makes that call? Uh, I don't think anyone actually should. I, I, I think that um, maybe it's the one thing, um, when the dust clears in the, in the distant future, when we look back, that it may be the one thing that uh, characterizes American society and perhaps British society within the last 15 years more than any other is to extend credit to people who 15 or 20 years ago would not have been eligible for it. But I think that we have to do that in, in small doses. I mean, it's an educational process that people need to go through to understand the, the sorts of problems and liens and whatever they're getting themselves into. But uh, we, we seem to completely ignore that it's either one or the other. You either get credit or you don't. And once you do, you're in for the, the, the whole boat. The, uh, the new credit card law has uh, received a lot of attention, uh, not just here in Washington, but nationally, and, and parts of it uh, are now, in fact, in effect. Uh, it's been celebrated as a triumph for consumers uh, banning various tricks and traps of the uh, credit card industry that you have studied and written about. What's your view of the likely impact on both consumers and lenders? I think that the new credit card act is a good idea, clearly. It bans the sort of deceptive practices that the credit card companies have been known to use on customers for the last 20 years, including deceptive statements, and go, even going so far as to use typefaces, which can't actually be read very well by someone unless they have a microscope in front of them when they get their monthly statement. But my objection to it is, is that it doesn't actually address the level of interest charged on consumer credit, in this particular case, credit cards. Uh, that has been left to the marketplace. And as we re realized since last December, which seems like a very long time ago in this particular crisis, that the banks have all tried to get in front of legislation like this and were allowed to do so by the Federal Reserve by being allowed to raise their interest rates. The original deadline for that before the credit card law had been passed was July of 2010. The Fed said that the banks would have until that time to put their shops in order, and they were able to raise credit cards rates as a result. So those who were paying, let's say, 7, 8, 9, 10 percent beforehand find themselves paying 5 or 6 percent more. And despite all of the good intentions of the particular parts of the Credit Card Act, that, is an over, that cloud overhangs this particular problem, and it's, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So while there are certain practices that are now uh, unavailable uh, to the lenders, uh, double cycle billing and, and, um, and some of the other practices, the trade-off, uh, you're saying, is higher interest rates? It appears so, yes. I mean, for years, banks and credit card companies have used uh, fees, use fees, mm -hmm. as disguised forms of interest. Um, they are less able to do so now because of the new law, so as a result, they just jack rates up while they're still able legally to do so or within the uh, given time period that the new law allows them. And that sort of thing um, does not bode well for economic recovery. If consumers are at the heart, as we said at the beginning of this discussion, if consumers are at the heart of the American economy, 
charging them more on their credit cards, which, of course, they become addicted to, does not bode well for a good recovery. In, uh, in your book and in, in some of your other uh, work, you um, speak in favor of a return to uh, the concept of usury rates and a national uh, usury rate. What, what level do you think is appropriate uh, nationally? There's a bill, I know, at least one bill pending in Congress that would set the rate at 36%, which sounds astronom- astronomically high. Um, but any two-digit interest rate would put a number of uh, lending practices like payday loans, for example, out of business. What, what rate should, uh, should Congress look to in terms of a national usury rate, do you think? I think off the top, I mean, you probably argue this ad infinitum, but off the top, my, my reaction is that we would use something that some of the states used in the early 1980s when the usury laws began to be lifted, and they were confronted with the same problem then that we are today. And my gut reaction is that perhaps 10% above the T-bill rate or something like that would certainly compensate credit card companies for the, the risk of individual creditors rather than institutional creditors. Uh, for instance, as the banks make prime loans or LIBOR-based loans. Uh, so it would seem to me that it would be logical to tie it to the T-bill rate and just establish whether it be a 1,000 basis points, 1,200 basis points, whatever, find a reasonable level that could be sustained perhaps historically by looking back and then set the rate at that level and see how the thing works out. Mm-hmm. And you acknowledge then that a rate such as that would put certain types of practices out of business, the payday lenders, the car title pawns, those sorts of things, as a matter of then federal law. Sure. I mean, I, I think that the payday lenders uh, somehow have managed to stick around for the last 80, 80 or 90 years. They do provide a service, but the, the service that they're providing is not justified to charge interest rates in excess of 50, sometimes as much as 100%, depending on how they're disguised. Uh, that's the sort of business which should have been done away with years ago, and rather than try to legislate against it specifically, this would be a very good way to get rid of it. And as uh, states are moving in that direction by establishing um, usury uh, laws, uh, but would you make that a matter of federal law or, or yeah, allow I, states to continue to? Yeah, I'd, I'd make it a matter of federal law because we, I mean, oh, as much as 200 years ago and moving forward until the 1980s, the American usury laws were plural. They were imposed by the states. And, of course, it was because of that, that, that fragmentation that Citibank and Chase Manhattan at the time were able to attack, attack them move out of their home states and move their credit card operations into states of convenience at that time, right. South Dakota and Delaware. Uh, I think we need to tighten up those loopholes. So I think this needs to be federal rather than state-oriented. Well, how about another uh, federal uh, uh, product or idea, uh, which is currently being debated here in Washington, and that's the uh, proposed Federal Financial Product Safety Commission modeled loosely after the Consumer Product Safety Commission for Consumer Products. Uh, Do you support uh, the idea of the new Financial Product Safety Commission to essentially ban certain types of products or practices as financially unsafe for consumers? Yes, I do, but I I would probably 
and this might not be particularly popular amongst those who favor less rather than more regulation. I think I would augment that by, on the other side, having some sort of agency. And I haven't really given this an enormous amount of thought. But another agency which would monitor the stuff which comes from Wall Street, the kinds of financial products which eventually filtered the way through to the consumer so that the consumer uh, agency is not overwhelmed with new product. Uh, one of the major problems has been, um, even in many books which have been written about consumer credit, many of which are very, very good, they tend to emphasize the sorts of things that we've been talking about, the deceptive practices of credit card companies, the addiction of Americans to consumer credit. But they do ignore completely finance itself as a discipline and or the discussion of interest rates. And I'm not too sure that a consumer credit agency is going to be geared to deal with that. Um, they can probably determine whether or not one interest rate is better than another, but that doesn't take a great deal of expertise. It may be very easy for Wall Street to create more products which get into this pipeline, which can, if they had been able to deceive the SEC and even the Federal Reserve, over the years, especially over the last 10 years, it should be very easy to deceive a consumer credit agency. So I think we need a comparable sort of agency, something like a patent office, whatever you like, to oversee the product that comes out of Wall Street. In other words, that agency would then notify the consumer agency that there's a problem coming. Please take a look. But at the end of the day, you favor the government as opposed to the market deciding who has access to credit and at what at what sorts of rates uh, those products are available? I, I think we have to. I mean, I think that uh, relying on the market now after this crisis would be a major mistake. It probably be one step forward and two steps backwards. Uh, we do need to be a little bit more critical of our market mechanisms than we have in the past. So when it comes to using the available credit, uh, again, the government, uh, in your view, knows best about how uh, consumers should use credit uh, as opposed to leaving that decision to free people in a uh, in an otherwise free market? No, I mean, I, listen, I, I don't think the government knows best by any means. Uh, I think at the stage we're at right now, however, we're going to get institutions which perhaps could be too strong, too, too much government regulation or too ambitious, which may in themselves fall on their faces as, t- as time wears on. Now, I don't believe that that is the actual answer. I don't think we have much other choice right now. That That's the situation we find ourselves in. So for right now, I think um, maybe one of these agencies needs a sunset clause of some sort so it can be reviewed periodically mm-hmm. by Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, once government gets power... <laughs> It's uh, my uh, 30-year experience in this town. They don't tend to cede it gracefully. Well, don't forget the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, for instance, still has a sunset clause built in and still finds itself, um, I wouldn't say pandering to Congress, but being a bit more diplomatic than, for instance, the SEC might be, although they haven't been very effective. So I, I think the sunset clause could be used to good effect for a while to see how these things work out. In other words, not to get a permanent agency there, which went off under its own steam entirely. Yeah. I have to, you have to go back to the Civil Aeronautics Board, I think, to find a uh, to find a regulatory agency that put itself out of business. Maybe the RTC. I'm not sure. Uh, what about other products that 
uh, are certainly controversial in the consumer credit area. I'm thinking of uh, mandatory arbitration agreements in uh, consumer credit contracts, uh, maybe marketing of credit cards to students. Uh, should those be the kinds of things that a uh, that a government agency should look at and say, you know, just as a matter of uh, the system's health, uh, because of their impact on consumers, these these types of products or practices simply should be should be banned. I I think perhaps yes. Again, it it's the old argument about regulation versus the free will of the of the consumer. But I, I think a lot of it's going to depend upon the sort of arguments that are made, both by the potential regulator as well as the credit-granting institutions, the banks and the credit card companies. Uh, for instance, one of the overwhelming reasons that they've always given for wanting to give credit to students, to undergraduates, is that it helps them establish credit. And that's very compelling when you listen to it for a minute. Of course, not realizing or forgetting that in this country, there's a lot of inanimate objects which have gotten credit over the last 10 years. I, mean, I, I have lots of um, credit cards offered stuff in my mailbox, as we all do, um, right. destined for dead relatives. So the idea that the students can establish credit in college and get themselves kicked off onto a spending career as soon as they graduate um, is compelling, but it's not necessarily true. So I think we have to wade through that one carefully, but... I would be in favor of not granting that much credit to undergraduates unless they can actually show some personal balance sheet strength, which, of course, most don't. Based on uh, your experience of, uh, of where we've been, uh, what do you think is the future for consumer credit and debt in America? Is it a matter of continued expansion to, again, help drive the economy, or do you think we're in for a period of sustained retrenchment and and if so you know when what impact does that have on an economy that is um you know simply struggling at this point well i've never been much of an economic forecaster nor actually ever cared to be but i think that realizing how consumerism and consumption drives this economy it becomes clear that uh in the current marketplace most lenders to consumers are retrenching and wisely so. I mean, they will have to do that. Although the cons- consumers themselves have been retrenching to an extent over the years. Uh, it was in 2002, for instance, that the number of transactions on debit cards equaled the number of transactions on credit cards, which is something of a hopeful sign for a spendthrift society. But um, again, I think everyone is going to have to retrench here, both sides, the consumer and the lending institutions. And the only forecast that you can see coming out of that is that this does not bode well for the economy. So we're looking at a period of low or no growth at all for some time. This would be very similar to what happened in the late 1930s before the Second World War. And um, it's just one of those things we're going to have to live with. We we just outgrew ourselves in terms of our spending power. Now we're going to have to pay the price and probably for a lot longer than the actual boom lasted. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it will help grow the savings rate, though. Wouldn't hurt to do that. No, not at all. But um, we're, we have been on a bender, clearly, and I think we're going to have to get off the addiction, and that, that could be quite painful, I think. 
Well, again, the uh, the history of consumer spending and debt in America is certainly a extensive and colorful one. It's the subject of um, the new book, Collateral Damaged, The Marketing of Consumer Debt to America. Uh, and we want to thank our guest, Professor Charles Geist, for spending some time with us on what's always a interesting subject. Thank you and good luck with the book. Thank you. My pleasure. And we thank our audience for joining us. There are more than 70 podcasts now available online at our website, abi.org, for listening or downloading. And until next time, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.